our copy of God's Word, turning to Romans. Jeremy left us off in Romans 3, and now just continue as we go about our study of this letter, Romans chapter 12. This morning, of course, we continue to work our way through this chapter, Romans 12, and we have hit the axis of the letter, we could say it that way, where gospel of God explanation gives way to gospel of God implication. Look at 12 verse 1. We've hit this point where it's by the mercies of God, because of this, on the ground of this, what is the implication? What are we to do? Present your bodies. Present your bodies. Holy, completely, fully. The Apostle Paul has turned now to the gospel of God. Here it is, carried out, lived out. And we have seen already to start this chapter... Gospel life is not an option, it's not a a preference. Nor, as we've covered, is this about Paul guilting people into living for God. That's not what the apostle is doing either. But more the reality that if one is saved by the gospel of God through Jesus Christ in that good news, this new life in Christ, all we have, right, in Christ, this obedience to one's new master is our new character and must be our new compulsion. The gospel of God makes one, what? A new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, with new impulses and behavior. We're brand new. The gospel of God thus defines identity in Jesus. What have we said? Not as an island, but as a part of his body. Yes, as we've studied gospel life, We have commented over and over again, it is life in divine corporation. It is life in community. As such, the gospel of God informs community living. This makes sense. And this morning we land, as we get with even more specificity, our member relations. Let's now survey these community attributes. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. Let's look at them. The first part over the next couple of weeks. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer for our gospel living today. We see these commands from your word, Lord, and we're reminded that we cannot do them apart from your Son. So we beg for illumination, reception, understanding, and living. Help us, we pray, in your Son's name. Amen. See that, look at verses 9 to 13, instructions on how members of Christ's body relate to one another. You see that? Next week... We'll take up verses 14 to 21, where Paul will take us to relations primarily outside of the body. In chapter 13, if you look ahead, the letter will look at relations in society and how we relate to governing authority. In chapter 14, Paul will address relations with brothers and sisters of varied convictions. And then in chapter 15, Paul will wrap this section with a summative presentation of Jesus Christ. That's what's ahead in the coming weeks as we descend into the second half of the letter. 
But as we begin this morning, again, before we kind of really get granular with the verses before us, let's ensure that we have clarity on our gospel situation. This can never be reminded enough, so let's make sure we have this. Let's look at verse 5 by way of a reminder. So we, though many, are one body, note it, in Christ, and individually members one of another. So vital. It is, look at it, verse 5, through Christ we are saved. It is by Christ, Christian, we are named. And it is in Christ that we live and move and have our being as his body. So important. We also want to make sure we're clear before we move forward. Church, let us not forget the expression of our community membership. What is that? It's our giftedness. Do you remember that? Not our badge, not our label, not our one or two talents. Our giftedness. We covered this at length last week, of course. But we need to carry it with us today because the Christian's giftedness that, remember, Holy Spirit blend or hue that we receive from him, Christian's giftedness enables us to fulfill all that we will see ahead in unique color for every single Christian. It's a continuation. Look at verse 6. Just a continuation. It's an outflow of this. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, look at the The exhortation here, let us use them. Let us use them. Let us use the divine deposit given to each one of us. Let us use our giftedness. Let us use our mix. Let us use our unique skills and abilities, our blends, everything, our talents as well. Yes, for certain. But the ultimate giftedness, and this is where Paul turns to now in these verses, the ultimate giftedness we've been given is, is actually this. It's a disbursement of the great perfection of God himself, and that is love. We've been given that. Really, the heart of our palate and our giftedness by the Holy Spirit is the love of God given to each one of us. Real, true, divine, authentic love. As new creations in the gospel of God living in the body of Christ, we've been given the gift and capacity to love genuinely as God loves us. This love of God given to us in the gospel of God is the ground of our living, beloved. Christian, we must work out that gift of love. It's not given to us so it can sit like a reservoir to not do anything. We must work out that love of God. In fact, for the true Christian, we recognize we cannot help but exercise it. We know it's a compulsion. The love of Christ compels and controls us, 2 Corinthians 5.14. And here in our passage, the charge to love and love one another, look, this way begins. To this point, we should also note all references to love have been to the love of God for man, moving in that direction, right? The love of God for man. God's love in our hearts, Romans 5.5. God's love through the cross for us, Romans 5.8. God's love given to us as a seal of security, Romans 8, 35 to 39. But now here, think with me, love is ordered to be given by the believer to others, to others in the body, to other believers, one to another. That's what we're going to see over and over again. Manifestations of the love of God to be manifested to each other. That's the thrust of this list of injunctions in this passage. Thirteen of them, in fact in this short passage this morning. And they're given as ongoing life commands. A very interesting construction here. 
Not just do this, but be always found doing this. That's how they're given. These are the attributes of member relations. So let us now consider them. Number one, we consider the heart. Verse 9. The heart. Let's look at it together. Verse 9 says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. This is the heart. Before we comment on the word genuine there, let's comment on love here. We need to comment on love here. It's agape. Many of you know that word. One of a number of words Paul will use to express love in this passage. And it means most simply to give self. Really reducing it simply here. This love, God's love, costs. It's sacrificial. And you can see how this flows right out of Romans 12, 1 to 2. The sacrificial Love that's been given, we are now to present back that kind of love. Now, that is love in and of itself, agape. But Paul says this is genuine agape. This is agape, yes, but there is, by inference, true and false manifestations. We could say it that way, of agape love. It may not be what it seems. In Westmount, this is the heart of member relations. Not just love, but genuine love. Said another way, if we were to, again, get into the original, it would say this, love without hypocrisy, love without mask, love that is not a deceptive love. This is so key. It's an important descriptor for us because, as you know, love can deceive, can't it? There are many love imposters afoot. And not just the commercial love this Wednesday, February 14th. There's many, many imposters afoot. We can be fooled by our sense of love because love is a matter of what? The heart. What does the Bible say of our heart? You know the commentary on Jeremiah 17.9. It is deceitful. In fact, the text says above all things. And you know the picture. You also know this moving to the New Testament. You know the picture of hypocritical love. You know him. In Luke twenty two forty eight, that deceiving love can imagine how many around this individual were deceived right up to the garden, right? You know him, he's the one that betrayed our Lord with a kiss. The ultimate expression of hypocritical love. A love that just makes sure the externals are taken care of. So how do we help ourselves avoid that kind of love that we can be susceptible to? I hope you're asking that. You don't want to be that. We don't want to love like Judas, right? We want to love real and right. How can we avoid deception and hypocrisy even in our own hearts? Well, let's consider genuine love. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. No, this is not going to be a mini exposition of this chapter, as wonderful as it is. No, it's not a special occasion. No, it's not a poem. This is the command of God on what love is, and it is going to be very helpful for us this morning, I pray. Just simply going to read verses 4 to 7, but we're going to pull out a sense of hypocrisy. So what is hypocritical love? Let's look at the text, and this will help us. Verse 4, hypocritical love is impatient. Hypocritical love is impatient. Hypocritical love is not kind at all. 
Oh, it may appear so, but it's not. Hypocritical love is the kind of love that envies and boasts. And you know hypocritical love because it wants to get some self-elevation in there, maybe with a veiled compliment of someone else. That's hypocritical love. Hypocritical love is arrogant and it is rude. Hypocritical love, listen, always insists on its own way. Thin, veiled, what do you want? But it always insists on its own way. Hypocritical love is irritable and it's resentful. And hypocritical love, this is most damning, rejoices at wrongdoing. There's wrongdoing, there's sin and evil. Hypocritical love rejoices with it. Hypocritical love has no time to rejoice with the truth. And listen, hypocritical love does not bear all things. Hypocritical love does not believe all things. Hypocritical love certainly doesn't endure all things and hope all things. Hypocritical love is not what you see here in verses 4 to 7. Back to Romans 12. There is much more we could say about hypocritical love, but those expressions are more than enough, aren't they? And you can see, believer, that it is a deceiving love. That's why when we read 1 Corinthians 13, we're penetrated on our love. Because we're deceived. Deceptive love, then, can corrupt community. Because this is the love, the hypocritical love, that we're manifesting and showing toward each other. And if it's this kind of love, it's a hypocritical love. This is why love is first here in this passage. Look at it. Genuine love, verse 9, stands at the head of this passage, this paragraph framing the rest. And while 1 Corinthians 13 is helpful for us in clarifying what genuine love is, we turn out that the definitive attributes of genuine love that Paul gives us flowing out of gospel of God implication. Genuine love does what? Look at verse 9. It abhors what is evil and it holds fast what is good. Beloved, genuine love, if it's the real article, here's the key, if it's the real deal, is a discerning love. It's a decisive love. This is really where we begin to struggle immediately with love, isn't it? It's decisive, it's discerning. Genuine love, look at the text, verse 9, abhors. You say, that's a strong word. It is. In the original, that means to hate violently. That's right. Genuine love, right? Hates violently, abhors evil. At the same time, genuine love holds fast to good, clings tight. By the way, that's the exact same command in another context of discernment. You know, at 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 says, Test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Abstain from it. it speaks for itself, doesn't it? Very, very clear. Genuine love, listen, beloved. Genuine love is not a lukewarm love. Revelation 3.16 It is God's love coming out of us on fire. Westmount, where there is genuine love, evil is abhorred. Not ignored, not tolerated, not rejoiced with. Evil is abhorred. It's an abhorrence to genuine love. Because that's our God. 
It's been said, and I want to repeat this. This is very helpful. Our security against sin, listen, our security against sin lies in our being shocked by evil. Did you get that? Our security against sin lies in our being shocked by evil, and immediately you probably see the problem. The reality today is what? We are not shocked by evil, are we? Really? We're not, it's not abhorrent to us anymore. Really. We do not really hate evil violently. Is that not true? Instead, we find subtle ways to give it accommodation. We justify abhorrent entertainment. We relish those news items even more when we see graphic warnings attached to them. We want to read it. And we want to see the video. And we don't stop reading, do we? The more graphic it is, it's like a train wreck. We can't stop taking it in. We stay and we remain in evil situations even when our skin is tingling and we know it's wrong. We just tolerate because it's not abhorrent to us. What happened to fleeing from these evil things? Beloved, can we ask together, when did evil stop making us sick? When did that stop? Now it entertains us. Believers, our call, look at the text, is to violently hate evil and to hold fast and love the good. And the question flowing and begging out of the text is, do you? Does evil make you sick? Do you run, sprint to what is good and hold fast and never let go? Do you so passionately love the good that you cannot even give thought to evil? Do you so desperately cling to the good that you could care less what other people think? You're so far beyond goody-two-shoes, you just say it doesn't matter because my God is good and I hate evil. Listen, this is not preference. This is not personality. This is passion, right? That's what the Word of God calls us for. It's strong action both ways, says the Word of God. Listen, consider the lukewarm. A man is not safe, a woman is not safe, when his or her life consists of a cautious avoidance of staying out of trouble. And on the other end, there's the other end, a calculated regiment of adhering to good things. That's called self-preservation. That's what that is. Just stay out of trouble, this might be good for me. Live the Christian life. That's mild living. It's not holiness And it is certainly, says Romans 12, 9 to 13, not genuine love. I would submit this because this text begs for it. You say, well, what do people hate? I submit to you, what many people hate is not evil, but the consequences of evil. Conversely, I also submit to you, beloved, what many people love is not the good, but the consequences of good. The examples of each, are they not, beloved? They're endless, aren't they? I could spend the rest of our morning giving you reams of example. Much more could be said, but drilling in is not Paul's point, so we leave it. Christian, this is the heart of God. Genuine love, abhorrence of evil, love of good. This is the heart of body living. The heart of member relations. And we're going to see this track. We had our brother Z read from Leviticus 19. And you're going to see the exact same trajectory in that passage that you see here. Taking care of your heart, your relation to God first, and then taking care of the member relations 
in community. Exactly the same here. So we're just going to track that way. This is the guiding principle as we move forward. The heart that impacts everything else. So we've dealt with that, the heart. Now a household, verse 10. A household. We mentioned earlier how to this point it was about God's love for us. Well, here we see the command now to take that love of God in us and use it. Use it. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Paul has employed agape love in verse 9. Now here, two other senses of love he's going to use. One is brotherly love, and you know that word, literally Philadelphia. That is the manner of our love. But not just brotherly love. Listen, sports fans can do that and will be today. But brotherly affection. Paul compounds two love words here. He's going to take brotherly love, the word for that, and family love, and he's going to compound them. And really what he's trying to get through here is a love in the household, the kind of love of a parent has for a child, the kind of intimate affection. Paul takes the word for blood and family and applies it to God's family, so key. And see the charge here, in Christ we're called to love one another, see it as family. This is no run-of-the-mill love if there is such a thing. This kind of household affection is the love of Christian community. Now it is true, and we do need to comment on this, that for many, their actual household experience is broken. For many of us, that's true, right? I understand that. Yes, the fallen, broken love exemplified in many homes today is far from biblical family love, and we want to recognize that. So common human households are not our picture or our household aspiration, are they? And you say, well, what is it then? A biblical household of love is a love that flows from the eternal household. And this is important. It's the very Trinity itself. It's the household of the Trinity. The love of the triune God flowing interpersonally, interfamily. The love of the Father for the love of the Son. The spirit love of both. That's your picture. Church, that kind of household love is what we're called to in community. I was listening to a lecture this week where the teacher was commenting on what is obvious to all of us today. We have no friends. We don't know how to relate to anyone. He gave one interesting example, and I submit it to you. The rise over the past few decades of the morning talk show. The morning talk show has become what it is because people are seeking friendship. And the only voice that talks to them is coming out of technology. Imagine how sad that is. They'll flip on the TV right away and listen to the talking heads, and that's their friend. But it's not just every morning. Today, this afternoon, millions of people in the Western Hemisphere, probably in the East, starving for an opportunity to be with each other and say, I don't even know what football is, but I'll be there. It's sad. Because I just want to be with somebody. We're so starving to be with other people. And of course, I have to comment on this so we're clear, the past four years have done nothing to help that, have they? Beloved, humanity is relationally starved, yet note the interpersonal feast of God given here. The gospel of God does not give us acquaintances. 
You're not sitting in a room of colleagues. You're not even among friends. But in the household of God, it's a thriving family bodily affection. These are your members that you're sitting with this morning. It's a household of members. Not here looking out for number one. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's it. The body of Christ is a household where members not only prefer each other's interests, Philippians 2.4, but it's a household of people living perpetually on their knees, serving, preferring one another, deferring to one another, dueling. That's the sense. They're dueling each other in showing honor to each other. It's a wonderful picture. This, again, is our compulsion because we are not a collection of strangers. We're not a ragtag group that happens to have similar spiritual interests. We are a unified body of members of Christ's body. And yes, if you were to look around the room today, you would be looking around at Christ's body. As such, you would look around the room at your brother or sister, and you would see Christ represented to you. Have you thought about that? Representations of Christ to you. Living Christ. So it would be logical in that sense, if not automatic, in our right mindset to honor each other because Christ is in the room, right? And if every member sought that, imagine, frameworks, we were talking about this downstairs, right? Just imagine this kind of church. Imagine it for a moment. The divine daily duel that goes on. No one would have lunch. Why? After you. No, I, no you. You go before me. No, I'm not. Into perpetuity. What a beautiful picture, right? I couldn't. Because I couldn't do it before you. Because you're hungry and you need to eat. No one would ever worry about themselves because everyone else is fussing about them. Could you imagine? For those of us like myself that struggle with anxiety and moment, you don't fuss about yourself anymore. You're done because everyone else is fussing about you. And no one would pray for themselves. Not to say you shouldn't. But no one would because you know you have an army at Westmount praying for you. And by the way, that is happening. Brendan and the team do that every day for you. This is a household of godly member relations. And that's who we are, Westmount, in Christ. Next, in haste, verse 11. Look at verse 11 with me. I just want you, as we read this verse, to note the manner. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Do you feel what's coming out of that? There is nothing lethargic in verse 11. It was Charles Taylor, the great commentator on secular things, speaking of Christian malady in our secular age. He coined this term. It's a good one. It's called this, the malaise of the imminent. What does he mean by that? How we are just so happy and content with the here and now. We're just happy with whatever we can reach out our hand and grab. The here and now. We have no eternal yearnings, or we certainly have dulled them for the transcendent or the eternal or even beyond ourselves. We have no drive beyond the here and now. Again, I could present this as the 137th thing that COVID and lockdowns proved to us. Listen, we already knew that 30-somethings were very content in parental basements. But what did the past four years teach us? That it actually is scores of people are content with the here and now, locked in their own homes. 
and they're just fine with it. Just give me a screen. In this modern age, we just keep losing our drive and ambition. I hear this all the time, hearing it from unbelievers. Why is there no ambition in the world anymore? Because it's been gutted. Take people away from each other. Pacify them with something that their arm can reach at, and they're fine. We just keep losing at an alarming, terrifying rate our drive and ambition. Listen, lackluster approaches to life are now normal. Sitting on one's hands is default. Passivity reigns, and this has infected the church. So much so, when we see passion, when we see someone worked up for the things of the Lord, what do we say? Well, they're fanatical. I don't know what's gotten into them. They're just crazy. Yet God's word says, do not be slothful in zeal. Look at the text. Do not be slothful in zeal. You should say, if you're tracking, wouldn't a slothful zealot be an oxymoron? A contradiction. Not according to the words here. Let's study. It means in our zeal, yes, in our passions, we can be passive. That's right. That word carries a sense of hesitation and timidity. And it's not too hard to conceive, is it? This isn't too hard. Let's just take another part of our New Testament. This is the stuff of the disciples, right? Remember zealous Peter in Matthew 26, 33? Oh, Jesus, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Lots of zeal there. And we know that he inched away like a sloth, right? By the way... Peter presents to us a common reason, this is very insightful, why our zeal is so slothful. And you know what it is? It's fear. We have wrong fear. We have all kinds of fears, but we fear the wrong thing. Our soul, maybe, at times, maybe a lot of the times is willing, right? But our flesh is very, very weak, and it's very fearful. What if I can't? What will they say? So we turn to apathy and hesitation because it's comfortable. Listen, there is no time, nor is there room in the Christian walk for slothful zeal. There's no time for that. We are commanded in God's word to live in haste. And this is a manner. This is a passion with diligence. Colossians 3.23, listen, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. That pace. That pace. William Barclay, I appreciate this, said this, the Christian may burn out, but he must never rust out. No, church, we instead must be, verse 11, fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. The idea here, to press the command, is for our spirituality to be at a boiling point. That's what it actually means. That's what fervency means there. The Christian spirit, his inner man, is to be set on fire, boiling over, brought to a boil by the Holy Spirit that resides now within him. That's what Paul is teaching us. Westma, we love and we live in haste. That's fearless living. Which means we don't run off our feet, but we do run. We press on as if we're pursuing a prize, an upward call, a goal that is our Christ. Philippians 3, verse 14. Now it is the manner of our living that is called with pace and diligence and passion without slack. But let's shift gears quickly here. Our hope, on the other hand, is another story. Our hope is steady, and that's our next point. It's our hold. What we hold on to, verse 12. A very familiar trio of commands in verse 12. Look at it with me. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Beloved, each one of these injunctions in verse 12 is the stuff of patience. Do you see it? 
It's a stuff of waiting. We are to hold, but we find it so difficult, don't we? I find, I don't know about you, every day my impatience is manifested to me. Right? We are just so impatient with everything. We rejoice, see it, in hope. But listen, that means not in circumstances or in other people. If you tie your joy to that, it is quite likely you'd never be joyful, would you? Right? You, you must tie it to hope. And this is the bedrock of the Christian. Hope in the Bible is always eschatological, meaning it's always tied to the end. Every time you see have hope, it's tied to the end. As such, with our sin price paid, with our sanctification sure, our future certain, with all of those riches secured eternally in Christ, by his hold, and what that means with what's coming, we must have hope. We can only have hope. Brothers and sisters, there's no such thing as a hopeless Christian. That's fiction. The Christian only knows hope because the gospel of God, this is what we've been studying, the gospel of God has secured our hope, right? Let's remember, go to Romans 5. How quick we forget, isn't it? What does Romans 5 verse 1 and 2 say? While the gospel of God was being explained by the Apostle Paul in these verses, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not peace necessarily today, practically, but peace eternally. You are not going to hell and bearing God's wrath forever. Verse 2, through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And then look at this, same idea. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 8. Turn to Romans 8. Remember this. Consider hope. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, note, Paul recognizes like he did in Romans 5, that there are sufferings, there are trials, but that's not the source of your joy, Christian. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with what, Paul? Because I'm suffering with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We could just simply say, just wait for it. And I know you can hold on to that, Christian. Remember, that's the glory to be revealed. Look at verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. In other words, if you're trying to tie your joy to something you can see and touch and feel now, it's a futile endeavor, right? For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, which we must, Christian, we wait for it with what? Patience, which we struggle with. Christian, our joy is never rooted in the present age or certain circumstances. Now hear me, I'm not saying present things can't give you joy. But when you try to root eternal joy and permanent joy to temporal fleeting things, because today's good day gives way to tomorrow's bad day, right? You can't do that. You must tether it rightly. And here it is, when we think eschatologically, we rejoice in hope, and a hope that knows kingdom is coming, right? Perfect, righteous rule, not the stuff you're seeing today, perfect rule is coming. In Christ, we can hold on, verse 12, look at it, patient in tribulation, we can endure knowing that in our suffering, 
God is building endurance. We learn this in Romans 5. And through endurance, character, and a character that produces what? Hope. Romans 5, 3 to 4. That is gospel joy and patience. And what keeps that joy and patience afloat in this community? Look at the end of verse 12. Constant prayer. That is how we patiently wait. We hold fast by prayer. Prayer, by the way, and constancy are so intertwined and linked in the New Testament. You see it everywhere. Let me just give you examples from the book of Acts. Acts 1.14. Acts 2.42. We could go through almost the whole birth of the early church. They were constant. They were devoted to prayer. And by the way, that early church might have been the most hopeful of communities, right? Most hopeful because they were praying. They were devoted to prayer. And they show us maybe where we've gone astray. The saints before us understood there's no patience. There's no holding on in this turbulent age without prayer and hope. And sadly, it's true. I think we've just gotten too comfortable with saying this. We fail at prayer over and over again. You'll have coffee tomorrow with a brother and sister and just say, yeah, my prayer has been lacking. And then in about seven minutes, you'll forget that. We're just so easily defeated in our prayer rather than getting up and praying again and again and again. Our Adamic remnant deceives that we can then get by without prayer. There's a defense mechanism. Well, God understands. My prayer life is cold. I'm not feeling the prayer right now. I'm busy. God understands. And I can get by without the mechanism that's not just showing my dependence on God, receiving the common grace, the means of grace through it. And we dispense with it. Such thinking is destructive to our spiritual life. We live in haste, serving diligently, but we hold on by patience and prayer. One more. These verses, one more. With help, verse 13. Member relations again, and of course, are about one another. This attribute of help and support has endured rampant neglect, right? Badly, I would say, in our day, quite badly. So let's be very careful here and look at the exact words Paul gives us in the inspired word. Look at verse 13 first. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Two important words that we need to grab a hold of there. Number one is the word needs. Do you see that? Needs. The saints, you and I, all of us, have needs. You may not to, you may not want to admit that. This morning, you may be here this morning, and you don't want to dare admit that you have needs. But there is no hiding from God. He knows what you need this morning. I was telling again the class downstairs, it was a joy this week to see actually a household admit this and send off a very practical list of needs. It was so good to just say, we need help. And if you can do this, we would be most thankful. This is member relations, meeting member needs, because we know there's needs. It's not a matter of if a need comes. In fact, I would submit to all of you, myself first and foremost, every one of us this morning have a need. And we we have needs. The question is, where are we going to have them met, or are we just suppressing them? Two, the second word to key in on there is the word saints. Do you see that? Help for the saints is the charge. Do you see that? It doesn't say contribute to the needs of humanity, does it? Contribute to the needs of the saints. That's what it says. 
And of course, it doesn't mean we do not ever help those outside the church. We know that. It doesn't, we're not saying that. But we're sticking to the text, and we realize this is where we've lost our way today. It does mean that our help priority, if we were to triage it, is for the saints. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, Paul talking about uh, a contribution being called together. 2 Corinthians 8, I'll read in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. And then listen to this. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. See that? They were moved so much because they knew the brethren were in need. And that stirred them beyond their means. Listen to Galatians 6 verse 10. In a passage where it talks about bearing one another's burdens, fulfilling the law of Christ, verse 10 then says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, so that we don't say it isn't, and especially to those who are, what? Of the household of faith, says the word of God. Also this week, always by way of God's providence, I got an email celebrating 800,000 plus meals made for the Peterborough community. This is an initiative that started in 2016. And listen, beloved, please don't get the wrong idea. I'm not picking on that. But it was a big boast this week that we're almost at a million meals for Peterborough. Harry and I know in the same amount of time, let's say since 2016, but we could go further back, the countless years of marriage that we have seen being presented falling apart because of the absolute abandonment in the church to care for those marriages. 800,000 meals? The chief shepherd says, so what about my homes? Meals over marriages, listen to me, beloved. Nothing demonstrates how backwards we have it today. And marriages continue to be in disarray. In fact, one of the big things I've seen over the past decade is they've been given not only worldly advice, listen, evil advice. They're having trouble. Well, here's how to keep having trouble and eventually to stay apart. Finally, the end of verse 13, seek to show hospitality. This command is not just to show hospitality. Again, look close, look at it. We are to, love this word, seek it. This, of course, had a force in the early church. Inns were very hostile. Dangerous places, especially for saints, especially in a very hostile environment, right? As we've been studying Wednesday already in that apostolic church, right? Very, very hostile environment. So these places of refuge, if you will, were needed. I want to submit to you something, beloved. And you know the environment we're living in today. It's not a first century refuge, is it, that's needed? How is the climate today for the saints? When you profess Jesus as Lord... Are you, are you welcomed into homes? Are they rolling out the red carpet for those that give their life for Jesus Christ? Where are the places the saints can feel welcome? Where is the oasis in the wilderness? Where is the refuge in the desert today? In other saints' opened homes, it must be. Yet how many Christians don't do this? 
And we're called not only to do it, but do it wholeheartedly. First Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another. And then it says this, without grumbling. We're not begrudgingly filling out our schedule and passing out invitations. If there is no such thing as a hopeless Christian, this passage teaches us this morning, there's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't open up their home often. Beloved, member relations in the gospel of God community come with help. Let's use it. Let us use them. Let us use them. That's a lot, right? That is a lot, but forget quantity for a moment as we end this morning. I want you to think of quality. I mean, there's so much more Paul could have said. It's what he said that is just so penetrating. This may be a lot, but it is good, right? Do we recognize that together? This is good and needed, and it is essential for gospel life. And we must end with this gospel reminder because none of this happens and none of it can happen outside of Christ. It just doesn't happen. It can't happen. Only in Christ and the gospel of God is, Romans 5, 5, God's love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is given to us, listen, to burn in us, to be worked out through us, and to lavish on others that love. That's the love of God poured into us so we can turn around and do the same to others. So Westmount Saints, let us continue to do just that. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice in hope. Lord, even as we talk about these present things, these present needs, we recognize that you have met our ultimate need through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to continue to meditate on him over and over again. And we know these injunctions will take care of themselves. Father, that is our prayer as we leave this place this morning. In Christ's name.